Amen. Oh, what a perfect Sunday already. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. You have to look back on your life and and answer uh, what the best day that you've ever had was. What's the best day that you ever had? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then the best day that you've ever had is the day that uh, God brought you to himself, that he called you and set you apart, that you chose to follow him. That is the best day uh, of your life. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you will experience that day very soon. Other than that day, what day do you look on and say, that was the best day that I've ever had? That was the best day I've ever had. I can tell you easily the best day that I ever ever had other than uh, coming to Christ was my wedding day. Easily the best day I ever had. Uh, It was everything that we dreamed that it would be and so much more. And it wasn't just the day. Obviously, the day goes by in a flash. Uh, It was about the reality of what that day did in my life. Uh, I I always say my life before getting married was two-dimensional. My life after getting married was three-dimensional. My life before getting married was black and white. My life after getting married is technicolor. I wish I, wish I could have been born married. I love being married. It was just it's the most amazing experience. And I love my wife so dearly. Probably the second best day after my wedding day was the day I got engaged. Uh, I'll never forget that day. It was a Sunday. It was December 21st, 2008. And I remember what I preached that morning. I preached from Psalm chapter 1. I even remember the outline of what I preached that morning. Uh, I remember being so uh, happily nervous. I knew that my wife was going to say yes, but I just wanted to surprise her. And I went through this elaborate, I'm just this hopeless romantic, and I went through all these elaborate things. Uh, We ended up setting, me and my best man ended up setting up a Christmas tree at the beach on a lifeguard tower with a snowblower and all these different things. It It was amazing. One of the most exciting experiences that you can ever have if you're married is, is that engagement day when you were able to propose or when uh, your husband proposed to you. It's one of the most amazing days in your life. And then when you get engaged, you show up at church or you hang out with your family and, and they look at the ring and they're just so excited. Congratulations. They're so happy for you. And then It's like everybody asks the exact same question right afterwards, right? Just hugs, congratulations, when's the date, right? Everybody asks, when's the date? And part of you wants to say, like, here's the date, we're planning it, but part of you wants to say, let's just enjoy getting engaged, right? We just got engaged, let's enjoy that. I feel like this always happens in life, where you get married, and then the next thing is, congratulations, you're married, when are you going to have kids? And then you have kids, congratulations on your first kid, when's your next one's coming? Like, you're always looking for the next thing. I remember people would ask me, when are you going to get married? And I would say, well, I would like to get married tomorrow. I don't need to wait. I would like to get married tomorrow. But we have to plan things. You have to figure out where you're going to get married and stuff like that. Like, I, I just wanted to get married right then and there. Everything in you when you get engaged wants to just get married. And it would be weird to hear a couple that's engaged say, we don't really have a date set. We don't really care about a date set. We got engaged. That's all we needed to do. It'd be weird to have an engaged couple say, you know what? We have zero desire to be married. All we really cared about was getting engaged. 
The reality is, I think as believers, we forget that we are engaged to Christ now, and there is a better date coming down the road. The date of the wedding ceremony, the date of the wedding supper, the date of the feast when we finally get to be with Christ, who we are longing to be with because we're engaged to him right now. Martin Luther used to say, there are only two days on my calendar, this day, today, that we're living in, and that day when I see my Savior face to face. Those are the only two days that I care about, living this day and being at that day and wanting that day so badly. And unfortunately, as one commentator says, many Christians get so dogmatically heated in their attempt to set forth a time or the details of the second coming that they tend to lose sight of the purpose and the beauty of the second coming entirely. So my question this morning is, knowing that Jesus is coming back, what should that knowledge produce in us? We're going to see three things from the text this morning in Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Let's read together. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a slave of yours, a fellow slave. I'm your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father, we want to long for Jesus to return. Just like an engaged couple can't wait to get married. We can't wait to be with Christ. Yet the things of this world cloud our minds, distract us. All the planning and the preparation, all those things tend to take us away from the reality of you are coming back to marry us. We want to be ready. We want to be anticipating that. We want to long for that day. So, Father, I pray by your grace, by your power, and according to your word, that we would walk away from here longing to be with you because you're longing to be with us. Right now in heaven, you're longing to come back and to take us home to be with you. God, grow affections in our hearts for Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you doing the work of illuminating our understanding, we will not understand anything of the beauty, the glory, the transforming nature of the second coming of Christ. So teach us this morning. We pray in the name of our Savior who died, was raised, and is coming again. Amen. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, give us three aspects of what should be produced in our hearts because of the second coming. Three things that the second coming produces in our hearts. Number one, the second coming of Christ produces unparalleled joy. Unparalleled joy. This is in verse 7. Let us rejoice. This is a command. Let's be glad. Let's be happy. 
And let's give glory to God. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Uh, Literally, that phrase, has come. It was getting ready. It was getting prepared. It was breaking through. And it's finally here. And it's not just the marriage of the Lamb is finally here. Verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb is finally here. If there is a supper, that means there's been a wedding. The feast follows the wedding, the ceremony. In our culture, there's three phases to a relationship, typically. You have the moment that leads to the engagement, which would be dating or courtship or whatever you want to call it. You have the engagement that's, you know, you get engaged, there's no vow yet, and you have this long interval of waiting and preparing for the marriage, for the wedding day. And then the third phase is the actual wedding day, vows exchanged, and then you get to celebrate by enjoying the rest of your life together. There were also three phases in biblical times for a relationship and for a wedding. Instead of engagement, they had something called betrothal, which you remember betrothal is most clearly defined in the story of Mary and Joseph, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, his adopted dad, uh, they were betrothed to one another, which was not being married They weren't fully married yet, but it wasn't engaged because, you remember, Joseph, if he was to break that relationship off, to break the the betrothal off, you didn't just give the ring back. You had to actually get a certificate of a divorce. So it's more like marriage than it is like our engagement is. But it wasn't fully marriage yet. And what would happen is there would be a betrothal where the husband's family would pay a dowry. There would be a down payment made Uh, my son will marry your daughter. It's just a matter of time, and they are betrothed to one another. It's more than engagement. They're betrothed to one another. And then the Bible tells us what would happen after that. This is not prescriptive by any stretch of the imagination. You don't have to do this. We don't typically do this. It's just what, it's descriptive of what they would do in a Jewish culture. The husband would then leave, and the wife would stay, And the husband would go prepare a place, to make a place, to get a home ready. And the wife would make herself ready and prepare to be married. And the Old Testament said that shouldn't be longer than a year. Again, it's not prescriptive, but that descriptive element helps us understand engagement should probably be short. So the husband that's betrothed would go away, would build a house, would uh, get a job, would find means to provide and then would come back and say, I'm ready to take you home to be with me. If you don't understand a Jewish mentality of betrothal and and marriage, you're not going to understand the beauty of what's seen in the analogy of us being married to Christ. Remember Jesus in the upper room on Thursday night uh, before he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, I have to leave, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then when it's ready, I want to come back and get you to be with me so that we can be together. That's all marriage speak. That's all marriage talk. And then obviously Ephesians chapter 5 says that the the bride of Christ is the church. And he gave himself for her. And she cleanses herself. She uh, is able to clean and wash herself. And I love how even in the Bible you have this uh, description of the woman uh, getting herself ready. And the man does nothing about getting himself ready. It's almost as, as if the man says, you know what? This is as good as it's going to get, right? Now, you've got nothing else that you can improve on this. This is it. But I know I can build you a house. That's what I can give you. And so you have these three phases, betrothal, and then this interval of waiting before the wedding, and then the wedding ceremony itself and the feast that would follow. And usually that feast was seven days long, and sometimes it was longer. 
the wedding supper would begin around evening on the wedding day and would last for typically a week. So here we are called, verse 7, to rejoice and to be glad and to give glory to God because that union has finally come. We have been betrothed to Christ. That happened at the cross. The dowry was paid through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, it is finished. I've paid for everything. The dowry's made, we're betrothed, and then he goes away, and we're in the interval period waiting for that wedding day. But here, the wedding day finally happens. The marriage of the lamb. The bride has made herself ready. The bride... Who is the bride? There, there are several different ideas as to who the bride might be. I, I think the easiest one to identify is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. The church is the bride of Christ. Some people would say it's Israel because the Old Testament does describe Israel as being the wife of God. But every time the Old Testament speaks of Israel being the wife of God, every single time it's in picture of the, the, um, the, the wife being unfaithful, Israel being unfaithful and committing adultery with every other God out there. So I don't think that this is Israel. I think that this is the church, the New Testament church, the saints of God gathered together. And the establishment of the kingdom of God that we talked about last week and the marriage of the lamb and the bride are really, I believe, in reality, the same event just looked at from different perspectives. As Jesus is bringing the kingdom in, he's also bringing his bride together to himself. Some people ask, when does the marriage supper of the lamb take place? That's a really good question. I don't think that the Bible is uh, completely explicit about it. I think that um, there are many views as to when it takes place. But uh, let me just give you mine. I think that this is probably uh, the safest bet. We know, first of all, we know without a shadow of a doubt that it begins at the second coming of Christ. Because we're going to see next week, he's coming to get us, right? He's coming back. How long does it last? That's the question. Does it begin in heaven? Does it only happen in heaven? I believe that it happens... Uh, as Jesus inaugurates the millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, Lord willing, uh, chapter 20 of Revelation, as he inaugurates the millennial kingdom, that begins that marriage supper of the Lamb, and, and I believe it goes through the millennial kingdom on even into the eternal age, the new heavens and the new earth, because that's just the feast of the, the wife getting to celebrate she's married to her husband. And so we have unparalleled joy knowing the day has finally come those of you who are engaged, we have some engaged couples in our church. If you were to get to your wedding day and go, eh, whatever. I guess we're getting married. Let's do this. We would all think something's wrong, right? Something's off. So, too, it would be strange for believers to look at the second coming of Jesus and say, yeah, well, he's coming back, whatever. No, it should give us unparalleled joy. That's why you see, let us rejoice, let us be glad, and let us give glory to God because he's coming back and the wedding is happening. Number two, it should produce in us not only unparalleled joy, it should produce in us energized sanctification. Energized sanctification. This is the end of verse seven. His bride has made herself ready. The bride made herself ready. Again, that was the custom of the day, right? The custom of the day was you get betrothed and at the moment of betrothal, the husband's going to go away and he's going to prepare a place for the wife and then he's going to come back and get her. And in the meantime, while he's gone, the wife is preparing herself. She's getting herself ready. She's learning cooking and cleaning and those kinds of things to help the husband and to be his helpmate. 
And she's making herself ready. She's getting herself uh, beautiful and uh, smells good and all these different things that the Bible talks about, the descriptive elements. You see this even in the book of Esther a little bit. And that's what we're doing as the church, as the bride of Christ in this interval period while he's going to prepare a place for us. We are getting ourselves ready. We're getting ourselves ready. But the question has to be asked, how do we do that? How do we get ourselves ready? How do we beautify ourselves? How is that possible? It says, verse 7, she's making herself ready. But then right next verse, next sentence, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So she's getting herself ready. We, as the bride of Christ, are getting ourselves ready by saying no to sin, by saying yes to righteousness, by killing sin, by saying yes to obedience. That's how we are getting ourselves ready as the bride of Christ. But we cannot do that on our own. Verse 8 reflects the proper balance between divine provision of grace and the human response of obedience. The bride receives her garments from God, but she responds to that gift by faithfully obeying him. The clothed uh, clothed in fine linen. The fine linen is white and pure. It's in glaring contrast to the gaudy clothing of the harlot that we saw in the previous two chapters. Fine linen, it's displaying holiness, purity. It's what we wear with uh, the, all of the saints as we come back with Christ. Bright is a, a Greek word that means glistening or, or radiant. It's actually the exact same description of the word uh, of the the clothing that the angels are wearing. So we will look like the angels in the glory and the beauty and the radiance of what we're wearing. So we, as the bride of Christ, purchased by his blood, the dowry's been paid, we've been betrothed, but we need help. We are, to use an illustration, we are Cinderella wearing filthy garments. And we need a bunch of magic mice to come along and to clean us up and to get us ready, and to give us this beautiful dress that we can wear. That's the problem that we have. We can't do this on our own. And so Jesus helps us. Jesus gives us the ability to do that. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15, describe the bride being purged of all sin and all iniquity and all impurity. And so with the same excitement of making plans and preparing for your wedding day, we should be excited and energized to prepare ourselves spiritually for the coming of Christ. And I want to take you to two passages that I think will help bring both of these realities together, our work and God's work. So first, turn back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. This is the same author of the book of Revelation, and he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which this just deserves a sermon in and of itself, he says, see or behold or look at how wonderful this is. Behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Literally in the original, it's see of what country this love is from. This love is not from here. This love is alien. This is love in our vernacular. We'd say this is out of this world love. It's the love that the Father has given. So we didn't get it. He gave it to us. This is the greatest love in the world, the love that says, though you are a sinner condemned to die because of your sin, punished for your sin in hell forever, though you are destined for wrath, I will pour that wrath out on Jesus so that you can be forgiven and then you can be brought into my family. 
He's given us this love so that we'd be adopted. We'd be called children of God, and such we are. We have been adopted. No one loves you the way that God does. No one has ever loved you. No one will ever love you the way that God loves you. Outside of this amazing love, only judgment. But inside of this love is only blessing. We've been adopted by him. He did all the work. An adopted child doesn't do any work to be adopted. They're just there. God has adopted us. And such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us. Because we are of his family, the world doesn't know us. We were of the world. We were of the family of the world. We've been adopted out of that family and brought into a new family. But the new family that we're a part of, the world doesn't get that family. We're in a different family. They don't understand us. They don't get us. They don't live for what we live for. We don't live for what they live for. We don't love what they love. We used to, but now we've been adopted out of the family of the world and into the family of God. I mean, that's a great question right there. Is your life and the way you live it to the watching world just an enormous question mark in their eyes? Like, who are you and why are you living the way that you're living? That's the way that we should be living our lives. We so long, so often we long to be accepted by the world. And the reality is, John tells us we're going to be rejected by the world. That's okay. It's okay to be rejected by the world if we're accepted by the God of the universe. Beloved, verse 2, those who are loved by God. Now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared what we will be. So we don't know exactly what we will be in heaven. Like what age are we going to be? How old are we going to look? We don't know exactly what we're going to be. But we do know this. He's going to appear. And when he appears, we're going to be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. We'll be glorified like he's glorified. Because if we don't have a glorified body, we won't be able to see his glory shining forth and live. And then all that to say, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, the hope of his second coming, that he's coming back. What does that hope produce? They purify themselves just as he is pure. So if you know that the wedding day is coming, if you know that he's coming back to get you, if you know that he is on his way to take you home, it motivates purity. It motivates you to say no to sin and say yes to Christ. And the standard of the purity is clear there, just as he is pure. Don't look around to other people and find relative morality of, oh, I'm doing better than they're doing. No, the standard of purity and excellence and glory and holiness is God himself. That's what we're trying to look like. So the second coming produces this energized sanctification. We begin to purify ourselves because we know he's on his way. But that leads to the second question. How do we purify ourselves? I don't know if you've ever talked, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you probably talked to other believers to say, I'm struggling with this specific sin. I want to kill this specific sin. How do I kill it? You'll get a whole host of answers to that question, right? One of my personal favorites that I've received many times. You know what, Patrick? You just need to stop trying and start trusting. You guys ever heard that one? And you, you, you start to kind of do like mental constipation, right? You're like, that sounds so incredibly profound, but it's actually unhelpful, <laughs> what does that even mean? Stop trying and start trusting. Should I try to trust or is that trying? I don't know what to do. Maybe somebody says to you, just obey. Stop sinning and obey. And you go, that's the whole reason I came to you in the first place. A lot of help you are, right? I can't do that. That's why I'm struggling. That's why I came to you and you're not helpful. Maybe somebody says, God loves those 
and helps those who help themselves. Start trying and God will help you. How are we supposed to be energized in fighting sin and in putting on holiness? Turn to one other passage, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Really, I, I think that John, as he writes Revelation 19, he probably has Philippians chapter 2 in his mind. The bride makes herself ready, but that's only possible because of the clothes given to her to be ready. We work, but we work because God's working. Really, Paul would lay out kind of two principles here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. We have our part in sanctification. We have God's part, our part. So then, my beloved, so we're loved of Christ we're, we're called into his family. We're adopted into his family. None of this has anything to do with being a part of his family or getting into the family. You're already there. You're loved of God. And you've, you've been obeying. Not just in my presence, but much more in my absence. Do this. Work out your salvation. Work out. Notice the text does not say work for Right? This is, uh, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. Greek is an incredibly technical language. And if Paul wanted you to know, you have to work in order to get. That's an easy word in the Greek to say. Work in order to get salvation. He doesn't use that word. He uses a word that literally means work because you already have. Work out the salvation you already have. You already have it. Now use it. Work with it. Notice also the text doesn't say, it doesn't say, number one, work for, but it also doesn't say, relax because you have salvation. It doesn't say, work to get salvation, but it also doesn't say, just chill out because you already have salvation. It says, you work because you've been saved. You work. Our part is working, not for, but because. We have a specific action given. We work. Work out your salvation. But we also have a specific attitude that's given. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. We're called to work. We're not called to be passive. We're called to be active. When you think about, okay, we have to prepare ourselves for that wedding day. We have to make ourselves ready. The bride of Christ needs to cleanse herself. How are we to do that? We have an active role in this. This would be called progressive sanctification in theology. We have an active role in working to say no to sin and yes to holiness. Just a couple verses you could write down. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You work to be sanctified. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It takes discipline. It takes effort. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Apply all diligence to your faith. Be diligent. Work hard. Growth in godliness involves work and effort. John Owen, a famous Puritan pastor, said it this way, God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. We have a part in this working. We have no part in salvation. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it even necessary. But we have a part in sanctification. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the assistance of divine grace is not given to us to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them, 
God comes to us to work in us. To work in what? To work in us to be indifferent? No. To work in us to will with resolution and firmness. Does he work in us having willed to sit still? No. He works in us to do. The direct effect of the influence of grace on our hearts is to make a man active. And the more grace that he has, the more energetic he becomes. A man will never overcome sin except by energy. And so that's why I think Revelation is saying, when you know that Jesus is coming back, 1 John chapter 3, you're going to start purifying yourself. After you've been saved, you're going to start working. And Philippians 2 is describing how we work. We don't work for, we work out what we've already been given. And we work with a specific attitude, with fear and with trembling. One commentator says, this is not the fear of a lost sinner before the Holy One, but the fear of the true child of God before the most loving of all fathers. We'll talk more about the fear of God in the coming weeks and months as we see even in heaven we will still be fearing God. There is an element of the fear of God involved in every believer for all of eternity. But for this morning, I just want to encourage you with a, a great book that uh, has helped me with this understanding of the fear of the Lord. It's called The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. Excellent book on what the fear of the Lord means, what it looks like practically, and how to apply this in our lives. So we work, verse 12. We work. But why? Verse 13. Because it is God who is at work in you. We can only work because God is at work. That's exactly what Revelation 19 said. Revelation 19 says, we are getting ourselves ready by getting the clothes that God has given to us. If God didn't give us those clothes, we, we would have no reason whatsoever to think we'd be ready. We couldn't get ready. We couldn't purify ourselves if God didn't give us the ability for that, to be purified. God is at work in you. God is working in you. Dear brother or sister, here this morning, God is working in your heart. You've come into this building discouraged because you feel like you're stagnant, you're not growing, there is no work that God's been doing, and you just feel like you are losing it as a Christian. I want to promise you, if you love Jesus Christ and are following him, God's working. God's working in you. And you might not be able to see it right now. God's always working in miraculous ways. Rarely are they apparently spectacular. Rarely are they seen and visible. But if you're here this morning and you are discouraged because you don't feel like you're growing the way that you should be growing, that's God working. That conviction of sin is God working. That's an evidence of grace in your life. If you want to be encouraged by seeing the hand of God in your life, just go to two lists in the Bible, okay? Go to two lists in the Bible. You have a list of spiritual gifts and a list of the fruit of the Spirit. The list of spiritual gifts and the list of the fruit of the Spirit. If you go to those two lists and just spend time in those two lists, it's like a little starter kit for identifying evidences of grace in your life. Look at those two lists and see, do I see any of these things happening in my life? Do I see any ways that God is using the gifts that he's given me in my life? If so, then you should be aware of God's working. We rarely are. That's one of the reasons why the church is so beautiful. Because we can look at each other and say, I see God working in you. You might not. I see God working in you. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before where you say goodbye to a friend for 
six to eight months, and then for some reason you just start hitting the gym, and you're like, man, I just, I want to get big. I want to start working out. Uh, you can clearly see that's never happened to me, but, um, <coughs> and then that next time you see that friend, six to eight months later, they're like, whoa, you've been hitting the gym. They're like, thanks for noticing. But if you have a friend that you see every single day, not every day are they looking going, you've been hitting the gym, right? Because they see the incremental change, and it doesn't really look like much. But that friend who hasn't seen you for eight months, then they see you, they see the change, they go, wow, this is massive. That's what the church is designed by God to do, to encourage, wait, I see massive change. You don't see it because you see it incrementally. You look at yourself in the mirror, you see the same person. Nothing seems to be changing. There's no growth happening whatsoever, and you're discouraged. And if you're discouraged here this morning, verse 13 is for you. God is at work in you. And God wants you to be aware of that work. God wants you to be aware of it. Now, he's at work in you to do what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. He's at work in you to give you the ability to work. And not just the ability to work, the desire, the will. I love this. God doesn't just say, I'm going to robotically change you. He says, I'm going to change your external works, yes, but I'm going to change your heart so that you want to do those things. I'm going to give you the will. Not only does he empower the doing, he empowers the willing behind the doing as well. We don't have equal parts in sanctification. A lot of people think, okay, if we're going to make ourselves ready as the bride of Christ, we're going to make ourselves ready, then we work, God works, we do 50-50. We don't have equal parts in sanctification. Our part is important, necessary, and vital. But apart from God's part, we have no part. Apart from God working, we have no ability to work. But since God does work, verse 13, then we know that our working works. We know that it works. No wonder Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will complete it. He'll complete it. So, you can work and work successfully at sanctification because God is at work in you. And all of his work in you should remind you of his work for you on the cross because his work for you on the cross produces his work in you. His work in you is derived from his work on the cross for you. So, we're not saved by works. We're sanctified by works. There's only one bank of righteousness, so to speak, in the whole world, in the whole universe. And if you want some of that righteousness, you have to go there. You can't produce righteousness on your own. Go to him by faith. And I, I would plead with you this morning, if you're here and you have never gone to that bank of righteousness, if you still think you're good enough to be saved on your own, that God somehow grades on a curve, that he'll look at you and see you're a nice person, uh, you are, you're deceived, you don't understand the danger inherent in trying to get to God on your own good works. Matthew chapter 7 is so abundantly clear that people on the last day will say, look at what I've done for you, God. Look at how good I've been. And God's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because you don't get to God on the basis of your ability of works. You get to God on the basis of his work and his work alone. Now, go back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. The bride has made herself ready only because it's given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, because the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So how do you get yourself ready for the coming of Christ, for the second coming, for this marriage feast, 
you find areas in your life that are alluring your love away, your affections away from God, and you kill those things. Confess your sins one to another so that you'd be healed. You kill those things and you say, let's run after Jesus. He's better by far than sin. He's better by far than the flesh. He's better by far than this world. He's better by far than anything the world has to offer. Let's run after Christ. So, Christ's righteousness makes our works possible, makes our righteous deeds successful. The second coming of Christ produces unparalleled joy. Secondly, it produces energized sanctification. It produces this sanctification that we know has energy in it, excitement, just like Spurgeon said. Uh, salvation, uh, uh, apart from your working, produces in you a desire to work. Salvation, given to you as a gift by God, motivates you with grace to work, not to get saved, but because you're already saved. Finally, number three, the second coming of Christ produces reverent worship. Reverent worship. Not only unparalleled joy, number one, not only energized sanctification, number two, but number three, reverent worship. Verse nine and 10. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those. This is a beatitude. This is the fourth of the seven beatitudes found in this book. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, who are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? There's two main views on this. Uh, one is either, it's another metaphor for the church itself. Uh, this would be the idea of those being compelled to come in. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. You've been compelled, you've been invited to the feast, and you come to the feast. This is Matthew chapter 22, that you've been invited to a, a wedding ceremony, but you have to wear a specific garment, and God gives you that garment. You can put it on, you can enter. And so... One view is that those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are the same people that are the bride of Christ, okay? Some people read this and they go, it can't be that because they're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb with the Lamb and the bride already being married. So we've got the Lamb and the bride, bride of Christ, that's the church, and then we've got these people being invited. That must be a different people group. I understand that. I'll give you the second view. But I also think that there's room here to be able to say they're just switching the metaphors and analogies, and I think I can prove it to you in context here. Because in chapter 19, the bride of Christ is clearly the church. And then in chapter 21 and 22, the bride of Christ is the city of the New Jerusalem. So John is having these metaphors changed even for him. The city of Jerusalem is so synonymous with the people of God for all of eternity that the bride of Christ is both the people, the saints, and the city that they live in. It's all together. So it could be that. The second option is that the bride of Christ is the church in the New Testament. And those invited are every other group of saints, whether it's Old Testament saints or tribulation saints, saints that uh, did not live during, you know, Acts chapter 2 to the rapture of the saints, right? That's the bride of Christ from Acts chapter 2, the inauguration of the church all the way to the rapture. That's the bride of Christ. And anyone who gets saved before that or anyone who gets saved after that, those are those who are invited as wedding guests. That's the second view here. Now, both work. I'm okay with either one of those because here's what we know for sure. The Bible is emphatic about this. There is no second-class citizen in heaven. There is no outsider guest. If you're going to take it to mean, and it's totally fine to, to say uh, the, the church is the bride of Christ and then Old Testament saints and tribulation saints, those are those invited to the wedding feast. They're kind of outsiders that are invited. And if you want to hold that view, that's totally fine. But you need to understand that doesn't mean that they are any less enjoying 
Christ as the groom. Uh, because I think for all of eternity, they are grafted in. They're brought into that reality of the bride. There's no second-class citizen or saint in God's kingdom. I mean, back in the Old Testament, even in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10 through 11, this imagery of the wedding and the bridegroom coming for the bride is right there. Uh, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God because he's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with robes of righteousness just like a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so too the Lord God will cause the righteousness and praise of his people to spring up before all nations. So even in the Old Testament, this imagery of being wrapped up as a bride and presented to her bridegroom is there. So we have a, a marriage supper. And again, if we have a supper, if we have a feast, then we had a wedding. And it might be easy for us to say, how long, O oh Lord? We read it this morning in um, Psalm 34 as we were reading and praying downstairs before the service. How long, O oh Lord? You said it was going to be quickly, and it's been over 2,000 years. How long, O oh Lord? How long? That's why the next words in this verse are so precious to me. The angel says, these are true words of God. John, you might not believe it's going to happen. John, it's going to take longer than you think it's going to take. Uh, saints of CBC, we might think it's way far away, and it might be, but it is going to happen. Jesus is coming back, because these are words not from an angel. These are words from the immutable, unchangeable, true God himself. And I think because of that, John falls at the feet of this angel to worship. I have so many questions about the marriage supper of the Lamb. I have so many questions. I have like a list. It's about three pages long of questions about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and John doesn't answer any of them because he just goes straight to verse 10, falls down. I'm like, John, get up. Start writing. Pick up the pen. Like, I need to know. John doesn't care. He cuts in. He knows that the second coming is happening. He knows it's true. It's going to take place. And so he just responds in reverent worship. Now, he falls down at the feet of the wrong person. <laughs> he falls down to worship him, but the guy says, the angel says, don't do that. I just, again, sanctified imagination, I just see this angel giving the news, so excited, right? How awesome is it to be this angel that gets to share the news of the second coming of Christ to finally bring the bride to himself? This is the coolest news this angel's ever said. And as he's saying the news, John falls down and starts worshiping him. And I think the smile on this angel's face just gets turned upside down to a big frown, and I think he's looking around going, get up, because the other angels are looking at us. Like, no, you shouldn't be worshiping me. You should only worship Jesus. Get up. Don't do that. I'm just a slave like you are. I'm just a slave like you are. You hold to the testament of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. By the way, this is really instructive and informative for our understanding of worship. A lot of people will say, as long as someone's worship is authentic, genuine, and real. It doesn't matter who they're worshiping, right? You, this is where you get the idea of, of Muslims being our brothers and sisters in Christ because, yes, they worship the wrong God, but they worship with such reverence and love and care and affection and genuineness uh, to their God. This helps us understand it doesn't matter how well-intentioned your worship is. If your worship is directed at the wrong object, your worship is wrong. That's why we don't have Muslim brothers and sisters. We have friends who are Islamic for sure, and we need to share Christ with them, but they're worshiping the wrong God. 
And no matter how affectionate their worship is, how genuine their worship is, it's not directed at the object that is true. So the angel says, get up, don't worship me, worship God. By contrast, the beast that we saw earlier, he would never have said this. Worship God alone. No, he would have said, yeah, keep bowing down and worshiping me. And the angel says, don't worship me, worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What he's declaring that's going to happen is from Jesus. He's true. And if it's on your lips as well, then you're giving the testimony of Jesus to others as well. This is the equivalent of Jesus' own testimony. It's coming from Jesus himself. If you're telling people about Jesus, you are, in a sense, you know, a little P prophet. There, there is no prophecy, and prophets don't exist in a you know, capital P sense like we had back in the Old Testament. But if you are giving God's prophecy, then you're declaring prophetic truths. And that will produce reverent worship in the hearers around you. What does the second coming of Christ produce? It produces, number one, unparalleled joy. Number two, energized sanctification. And number three, reverent worship. Right now, at this very moment, Jesus himself is setting the table for you. He's setting a place for you. He's getting the the supper ready. His father is delighting in the reality that soon he will send his son to go get his bride. Why are we waiting now, right? Like every engaged couple feels, we want to get married tomorrow. Let's hurry up and do this. Why are we waiting? Two reasons. The bride isn't all here yet, and the harlot needs to be destroyed. The bride isn't all here yet. We need to go out into the highways and byways, and just like Luke 14 says, compel people to come in. Come to the wedding feast. You can be invited to the wedding feast and be a part of the bride of Christ. We're waiting and longing to see Jesus. Some will see him through death. Some will see him through the rapture. Some will see him at a second coming. And as we wait and as we long for his return, as we long for our marriage and union and wedding with him, we have a gift that he gave to us to remember, to remind ourselves he's coming back. And it's here before us this morning. Every time that we partake of communion, we are doing so excitedly anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because you remember what Jesus said. I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in that coming kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The next time Jesus partakes of communion is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So therefore, every time we partake of communion, we are reminding ourselves Jesus is coming back. This is just a foretaste, and one day he will return to give us the real feast. And that feast will be a feast that will be a celebration that will never end. It will go on into eternity. All of redemptive history for thousands and thousands of years has been aiming at this one reality, the final union of the Son of God and the people of God together for all of eternity. We are the bride of Christ, and he as our groom could not love us more, and he has promised never to love us less. We are in that wonderful period between betrothal and the marriage, the wedding ceremony. We're in that interval period, and we're waiting. But there is no dowry left to be paid. He paid it all. And that procession and that ceremony is not far away. Father, we thank you so much for your word that gives us longing to be with you. 
It's not far away. We only have a few more miles in this life to walk. We only have a few more days to go through without being married to the one that we love more than anything in this world. God, energize our sanctification. Give us joy, even as we sing this morning. Give us reverent worship as we we praise you and we long to be with you. And even as we prepare our hearts now to partake of communion, may we do so knowing that there's a day coming. You're waiting. You're not taking communion. You're waiting to partake of this feast with us in that kingdom, in that day, in that marriage supper of the Lamb. You're waiting. And every time we partake of this gift that you've given to us, we're reminding ourselves you're going to come back to get us. You promised it. I go away to prepare a place for you. And and if I go, then I will return to receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That's what we look forward to. Help our hearts to rejoice in that reality this day as we partake of communion. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the men to come and distribute the bread this morning and as they pass out the bread just take it hold it don't we'll partake together as a church family so wait and then we will partake together but as you are receiving these elements as you're receiving the bread know that jesus himself the bread of life is waiting in heaven longing to partake of this with us that day in the kingdom let's sing together Sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighing down, thou scornfully surrounded with thorns thy lonely crown. How fair. Was good.
night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Now do this in remembrance of me. What we just sang was the reality of the dowry that was paid. Everything that needed to occur in order for us to be saved, that needed to be paid in order for us to be saved, we had no ability to do it. And so Jesus, in the upper room that Thursday night, said, I am going to do it. Just a few hours. I'm going to do it by dying on a cross. We sang such horrific descriptions of what Jesus went through. But you remember he did so, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. Yes, the glory that it would bring the Father. Yes, the beauty of gathering in the church. But the joy of being able to bring you into his family, to call you his son or his daughter. So we look at the horrific nature of the cross, and Jesus says, I did it because I love you. I love you. And I gave everything for you. That's why we remember him when we eat. And we do so not saying, okay, I'm going to work harder. Okay, I'm going to pay you back. We just say thank you. Let's feast on the grace of God together as we partake. And as the men pass out the cup, again, just hold it, and we'll partake together after we sing.
All of our trust is in the blood of Christ. Only his blood can wash away our sins. Only his blood can present us pure and spotless before the throne. And so every time we partake, we give joy and thanksgiving. And, and with gladness of heart, we are rejoicing. And every time we partake, we are energized afresh. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God. Don't work in order to get God's favor. Work out your salvation because he's already given you everything you need. Jesus said he wouldn't drink of this cup again until he drinks it anew in the kingdom. The next time that he partakes of this with us, it will be in that kingdom. Until then, we proclaim with absolute confidence, he's coming again. He's coming again. Let's partake with joy. God, we are so thankful that your words are true. You are coming again. You are sending Jesus to set up a kingdom that we get to be a part of. And you are going to bring your bride to yourself where we get to be with you forever. In this interval period, God, help us to long for that day, to be affected by that day, and to compel others to come into the bride. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Our benediction this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which really is a counterpart to what John saw in Revelation 19. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's Day. We will see you Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for small groups. And next Lord's Day as we dive back into the end of Revelation 19. God bless.